I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. You know, when you play chess, you have to have a game plan in mind. And in the world of business, it's very important to have a business plan, but it's also critical to be able to respond to the evolving market dynamic. And if you're just blindly following your own game plan that you've conceived when you started, you'll not make it. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. After a mini hiatus, Scaling Up is back and we've got some incredible guests lined up in the coming months. None more so, though, than this episode. Alex Vineker came to Australia as a 16-year-old from the Soviet Ukraine, not speaking a word of English, but packed with a steely determination to make something of himself. And it's fair to say that's an understatement as to what he's achieved to date. In the midst of the global financial crisis, he co-founded BetaShares, a passive exchange-traded fund manager, with now about $23 billion under management making them the second largest in Australia and New Zealand. An ETF, as it's known, mimics an index, but allows it to be bought and sold on an exchange. And the industry has moved fairly swiftly from vanilla offerings, think tracking the ASX 200 or S&P 500, to more thematic or exotic type indexes, be it ESG based, or even more niche, say tracking a basket of companies involved in the creation of the metaverse. BetaShares has been at the forefront of this innovation, continually pushing the boundaries in its mission to democratise the ability for anyone to invest, given the ease, low cost and diversified nature of investing in ETFs. BetaShares, despite having over 800,000 retail customers, might be a bit of a under-the-radar success story to many listeners of this podcast, but it's one I've been wanting to tell for quite some time now, and you're about to hear why. It's a story of grit and passion, this episode is a little peek into what has driven the success of a massive business and a business still with a huge opportunity ahead of it. You can stay across all of TDM's news and views via our socials, be it LinkedIn or Twitter, at TDM underscore growth. Alex, what an absolute pleasure to have you on Scaling Up. There's going to be so many wonderful words of wisdom, no doubt, because your story resonates with me on on so many levels. I love the grit, the determination of not just your life story, but also the founding story of BetaShares. Let's start there. Let's start with your history, your background, and we'll see where this takes us. That sounds great. Good to be uh, with you. I'll try not to disappoint on the uh, the words of wisdom. Can we go back to you arriving in Australia as a 16-year-old? So I uh, was born in Soviet Ukraine, I grew up there, and um, for quite some time as we were growing up, my family was considering um, how to get out, basically, and it wasn't easy while Soviet Union was intact. But uh, finally, in 93, at the end of 1993, we got uh, permission to leave. That was after Soviet Union fell apart. And in March 94, we arrived in Australia quite an experience. So my understanding is at that point you didn't speak any English? That's correct. That's correct. As you can tell, I probably uh, still struggle from time to time. But uh, (laughs) but, uh, yes, yes, we didn't speak uh, English. 
But it's one of those situations, and I think it's a story that is very common with a lot of immigrants. Um, you kind of sink or swim, basically. So you're placed in an environment where you have to have to start learning fast. In terms of swimming, you might well have broken the 50-meter uh, freestyle record. Can we pull the curtain back, so to speak, on growing up in the Soviet Union? It seems a, a very foreign thing for anyone who's grown up in beautiful and, and lucky Sydney, Australia. Can you describe your upbringing, the things that were dear to you at the time? And I'm always a, a big believer in those formative years, really creating a sense of your values and philosophies that hold you in greater stead for life as it starts to flourish. How was your upbringing and how did it shape your thinking today? Great question. Um, there were several, I think, important forces that influenced you know, my childhood and, and upbringing. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, family. I am very lucky to have been born into a very loving and a very selfless family. Uh, so even though uh, life in Soviet Union was quite difficult, I never felt difficulties, I never felt problems. I felt uh, a lot of love and a lot of support from my family. So my family has really been the most important uh, and a very important sort of formative, um, obviously, factor. And that meant that I was encouraged uh, to be at my best, basically, at whatever that was. And like most Soviet kids, I grew up, you know, playing chess, uh, piano, uh, being good at maths, or relatively good at maths. Um, now my son is uh, shaming me, but um, those were, you know, really important. I think the war and the background of my family and a number of um, very close members of my family perished in World War II had a very big impact onto the psyche. And, you know, sort of definitely cherishing each day and cherishing, you know, the family uh, and making most of it has been always very, very important. Um, and I think the third thing, which is kind of more specific, I guess, to the Soviet regime, is that the regime was always so restrictive that part of the mindset that I've observed um, from some of my closest family members and my late grandfather uh, probably in particular has been the fact that you have to look for opportunity. You know, if you, if you just go with the flow, you know, the system will not provide anything uh, to you. Uh, you really need to be proactive and you need to look out for opportunities. That's a wonderful lesson and we'll get into how you saw an opportunity in BetaShares. One thing while we are talking about the Soviet Union, to me, BetaShares, and as I said, we'll come to this, it, in many ways is democratising investing. And there's this nice narrative, I'm probably not the first to try and elicit this, but growing up in the Soviet Union, creating a business that democratizes in a very fair and equal way people access to great companies all around the world. Do you ever reflect on that and think that those formative years actually shaped your, your views on the business that you have today? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. It's a really good observation and, and that is absolutely the fact. I think back in my childhood uh, in uh, Soviet Ukraine, um, you know, pretty much everybody was equal. I mean, they were equally poor, but, you know, equal. People didn't understand uh, the concept of wealth creation, you know, other than the fact that you have to work hard and try to earn basically whatever you can. Um, you know, the only investment uh, that was available at the time 
you know, were government bonds, basically government paper. You could buy like literal physical, like, you know, sort of bearer bonds, basically, which would pay you nothing, but at least it kept your money safe. And most people would keep their money under the mattress, uh, you know, back in the day. So I definitely, back in my childhood, you know, knew, or my understanding was the, the only way to really create wealth uh, is to work very hard. There was no understanding uh, of the fact that you can actually make your money work hard, uh, whatever you, it is that you've saved. And frankly, I always grew up uh, with an understanding that investing was only for the rich. And we came to Australia with nothing, like we had, we had no money. And I remember very clearly having that hope in me and the ambition and the desire in me to one day, um, you know, be able to invest, um, but understanding that it's really only something that you can do when you're rich. And over time, as I got a little bit more educated and understood uh, a little bit more about, about the world of investing, it definitely motivated me greatly to enable everyone to get ahead in life and to enable everyone to make progress financially, no matter where you start. You know, whether you're starting with very little, like we did when we came to Australia, or whether you have, you know, a meaningful amount of savings. It's a wonderful and inspiring mission that you're on. Let's get into the BetaShares founding story, as it were. I think the time lapse, as you presented it, came to Australia at 16. Incredibly, a double degree, finance and law. Most people can only dream of that. But they had not... very low standards. They had very low <laughs> admission standards back at the time at UNSW. Having gone from no English to a double degree in six years blows my mind and talks to the, the grit and dedication of you as a person. And you've applied that to beta shares. Let's fast forward to 2008. The GFC is well and truly underway. And you saw an opportunity. The opportunity with, with ETFs had actually been on my mind for quite a few years um, you know, before then. Um, but as always, um, you kind of look for the right time, basically. So I had, um, prior to starting BetaShares, had the chance to work with a number of traditional active fund managers. And the one thing that I've observed is that, I mean, they're all very smart, you know, highly educated people. But despite that, I mean, statistics, you know, the scoreboard is, is very clear that, you know, three quarters of active managers cannot outperform the index, basically. It's just a reality. And whether you're in Australia, whether you're in the US, whether you're in Europe, whether you're managing money in equities or in bonds, it just that's just statistics. And it became very apparent to me that there must be an opportunity to make index investing more available. And then I stumbled, you know, across the ETF vehicle um, and, and started following it for a while. Uh, eventually, in 2008 um, and 2009, uh, we, we went live, BetaShares went live in December 2010, a bit of time spent on research. And I actually um, went to the U.S. and spent a bit of time actually in the U.S. Uh, interviewing everybody that I possibly could and, and just picking people's brains and just begging for favors, basically, and just asking of people to, to spend time with me, it became very apparent to me that there's a great opportunity to build this business in Australia. And interestingly enough, if I may just take a small detour, um, the ETF industry itself uh, was actually born after the great crash of 1987. So this is, this is a bit of an old story. I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I, I hope not to bore you with it. No, but uh, the American exchange, Amex, uh, at the time was desperate was desperate to get out of financial strife after the 1987 crash. And they had a 70-year-old physicist who was still working there. He um, came up with the idea of essentially creating this wrapper which would allow investors to trade baskets of stocks, uh, baskets of bonds, um, essentially trade managed funds, create a wrapper, a convenient wrapper 
uh, which allows you know investors to pass on that that um, you know managed fund to each other in a convenient and a cost-effective way. It's really interesting. So physicists actually invented ETFs. That's number one, um, and uh, they were also born after the uh, you know after the financial crisis. I was going to touch on on the history of ETFs because I think it plays into beta shares. What I'm curious is the opportunity as you saw it. When you have an idea, you can either do something better than what has already been done, and ETFs, as you say, and they've alluded to, already existed, particularly in the states, or you can do something new. And in this case, you decide to do something better. What was the proposition that you were trying to convey, particularly in Australia, where it was probably more nascent than in the States, and how it played into the opportunity that you saw? Yeah. So look, um, first and foremost, having spent a reasonable amount of time in the financial services industry prior to uh, starting the business, it was very clear to me that there's a big difference um, between a great idea and actually turning that great idea into a business. And I have been possessed by this concept of focus on execution for a very, very long time. And I had felt that, yes, um, it's a competitive industry globally, and it will be a competitive industry. It is a competitive industry in Australia. But it's always important to try to play to your strengths, recognizing what you're good at, recognizing what you're not good at. And um, the business case uh, for beta shares early on, it's a little bit different to, to what it is today. We've evolved and we've learned a lot of lessons. But at a very high level, of course, um, it's centered around the secular trend of rebalance, basically, between the vast majority of money being um, managed actively, even though the vast majority of active managers don't perform, to finding some sort of equilibrium where there is a better balance between active uh, investing and index investing. That was first and foremost. And then in terms of our right to exist under the sun uh, as a business and be able to compete with, with you know, some of the strongest um, you know, sort of financial services players globally, I was really focused on, A, the Australian customer, the Australian client, understanding the needs uh, and building solutions for that client, um, as opposed to being an export-led business um, where you're making existing solutions that might exist in other parts of the world available. And then working hard and working smart, um, trying to be innovative and not take anything for granted. Maybe it's worth digging into what you saw in the Australian market specifically, because there are some characteristics and traits in this local market that has made BetaShares what it is today. Certainly, certainly. Every market, of course, is different, and Australia is no exception. There are some very specific nuances of Australia. I think, number one, um, Australian investment market uh, is very much retail-driven. Australian ETF market is very much a retail market. Um, it's very different to what it is in Europe. Europe is predominantly institutional. US is, um, you know, probably 50-50, a mix of, um, you know, sort of hedge funds, you know, um, actively managed funds, um, other institutional allocators and retail. Australia is very much a retail dominant. Are we um, talking 80-90%? Yeah, yeah, probably close to 90%. And broken up of self-managed super funds and what you'd call retail investors as directed by brokers? Yep. So I would say of the 90, if we if we use that approximately, I'd say about half are completely self-directed and the other half are advised by uh, financial advisors, um, by uh, brokers. And the remainder is, is institutional, basically. So it's very much a, um, a retail market. Um, again, if we rewind back to the day of uh, formation of beta shares, there were a couple of things that were really interesting uh, and fascinated me at the time. Um, Australia obviously has a very small population. 
but we have a very significant retirement savings pool, right? Our fourth largest in the world, uh, thanks to the compulsory superannuation regime. The vast majority of SMSF investors, um, you know, have a brokerage account. And what was available through that brokerage account uh, was basically Aussie stocks at the time. It was just Aussie shares. You can buy BHP, you can sell NAB, you can buy Telstra, you can sell Woolies. It was very clear to me at the time that the only way for us to have a viable pension system, basically, and SMSF uh, industry, of course, is part of that pension system, is to get exposure to global markets. It was very, very apparent to me. And I thought that ETFs are going to be a fantastic vehicle uh, to deliver that exposure. So back to your question of what's specific about Australia. It's very different when you're sitting in the US and your market is, you know, give or take half of, you know, the global benchmark, MSCI world. It's a very different urge uh, to diversify globally than one has to a situation that we have in Australia where, you know, we are a tiny proportion of the global GDP and the Australian market is a very small portion of, of the global benchmark. You know, we need to look outside of our home ground in order to have a sustainable future as investors. And that, to me, was very clear. Um, I think the ETF industry, um, you know, provided and absolutely does provide a very convenient, very cost-effective uh, and transparent access to the global markets, whether it's global equities, whether it's, you know, any uh, particular sectors, technology, et cetera, you know, sort of fixed income, the list goes on. And that's become clearer and this strategic move that you've made has really propelled BetaShares to just a size and scale that now is, is really dominating the industry. I think you were the first to, to have a NASDAQ 100 ETF, which you'd think of as it's a pretty vanilla ETF, so to speak, but it now feels as though this kind of second act of the first horizon was international in terms of bringing the ability to invest internationally to Australian retail investors. The next little moment is around, it feels, and correct me if I'm wrong, thematic investing, be it ESG or any other thematic that you can think of. I've heard of you know metaverse uh, indexes popping up here and there. But that certainly feels as though BetaShares has grown to a size and scale, but you're only just warming up. It's a very, very good observation. And in fact, quite often um, when we sit down with the team and talk about where the business is at, I honestly feel today, and, and I had that feeling over the course of the last 12 months or so, that we are really at a moment of almost second founding of the business, basically, as if we're starting again, which is a pretty incredible feeling. And um, I talk to my wife about it a lot. I just feel very, very lucky and very blessed to be in this position because unlike in 2010, uh, of course, when, when we launched our first funds, we have an incredible, incredible team. I mean, we had a great team. It was only a team of six, um, you know, back in 2010. Today, we have an incredible team with so much more depth, with so much more capability. And we are continuing to find opportunities to lift the bar, basically, and to continue innovating, continue delivering opportunities, uh, you know, to our clients. So today, I feel as excited, in fact, probably more excited and more motivated and more driven for the next decade uh, than I was back when we started the company. And you, you talked to initially almost that counterposition of providing products that the consumers wanted. Are you seeing this huge groundswell to thematic 
and ESG investing? Oh, yes, yes. Look, the way I think about it, I think about it in quite simple terms um, and often think about the expression that uh, Warren Buffett uses when he talks about himself. He says, I invest in what I know. And I think the truth is that most investors actually invest in what they know. And if I look at the asset allocation of the typical Australian investor, you know, sort of 20 years ago, 10 years ago even, you'd basically see, you know, the big four banks um, because they're on every street corner and Telstra because you get your phone bills from Telstra and Woolies because you go shopping at Woolies and, um, and maybe a few other stocks. And, and people have actually in Australia, like, like everywhere else, have been investing in what they know. Um, now, over time, of course, you know, globalization, world economy has changed a lot. I mean, today we're all carrying, you know, iPhones or Samsung devices. Um, you know, we are using social media. You know, we're using Facebook and Google or Meta now, of course. Uh, Google and, and, you know, sort of similar companies. We become clients um, or customers of those. And, and I think the thematic investing space, just tying it back to what you asked, Thematic investing is essentially allowing people to invest in what they know. So, you know, if you think about, you know, cybersecurity, we have a very successful cybersecurity ETF hack. You know, people know cybersecurity is an issue. It's very simple. Um, I mean, you don't have to, you know, even refer to the recent, um, you know, scandals, basically, of hacking and, and, and some of the other issues. But people know that, you know, they have to protect themselves. Governments and, and corporates are investing, you know, um, hundreds of billions of dollars, basically, um, you know, to strengthen their cybersecurity posture. And it's a great investment if you participate in the cybersecurity industry. And the same goes on for others, whether it's robotics, whether it's automation, whether it is clean energy. I mean, those are themes which are very accessible. People understand them. They invest in what they know. And ETFs deliver that opportunity in a very accessible way. It feels like you're almost in amongst this perfect storm of you have these not only uh, incumbent ETF providers that you've been disrupting, but also the incumbent index providers. And all of a sudden there are these younger, nimble index providers that allow for this thematic investing to take place. And, and they're spinning up indexes in I don't know, a week, two weeks, where the incumbents were taking six months, 12 months to, to maybe put out an ASX 200. That's a great point. The innovation in indexing has been absolutely mind-blowing um, over the course of the last decade. When BitShares started, the vast majority of investors associated index investing with broad, you know, diversified market capitalization indices like MSCI World or ASX 200, S&P 500. Today, um, you know, we've got the traditional index businesses, the S&Ps and NASDAQs and FTSEs of this world. But we also have firms such as Selective who are absolutely shaking up uh, you know, the world of indexing, you know, they work fast, they uh, bring fresh ideas to the table, and that ultimately enables, you know, enables the industry to continue lifting the bar. I mean, there's definitely a lot more, um, you know, a lot more indices available um, out there in the market today than even, you know, five years ago, three years ago. That's uh, continuing to evolve. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. Just to put a wrap on Horizon 1, BetaShares has gone from zero to 23 billion in funds under management, incredible. In 11 years, it's 25% market share in Australia. 
there's no doubt that the market will probably grow from 100 billion to 500 billion in the next five to seven years. So you've got room to grow organically. No doubt you're thinking from an asset accumulation point of view, there might be some international opportunities. What does Horizon 2 look like? And I guess the question is, what permission do you feel like you now have to create a whole range of products for the retail investor having gained their trust through such a wonderful business that you've built already? That's a question that I'm thinking about a lot, and and I'm thinking about it a lot with my with my colleagues, of course. Um, first and foremost, we are incredibly fortunate to have the trust of almost a million Australians. We are working every day to gain that trust and to maintain that trust because trust is not something that one ever can take for granted. It's very easy to lose trust um, if you abuse it and we have a very strong grounding uh, as a team and very strong understanding that that trust can never be taken for granted. So whatever it is that we do, uh, we need to make sure that we deliver on the important things that have, you know, that have gotten us to where we are. So what those are, uh, first of all, trying to provide, you know, value for money, uh, you know, transparent financial products or financial services. We definitely have an opportunity to do more with our clients. Uh, we would love to do more with our clients. You know, there are some areas, if I was to um, drill into it a little bit, we, we certainly feel that financial literacy uh, in Australia still has a way to go. And we think there is a need uh, for a future manager of investor assets to help those investors make more sound investment decisions, or in some cases prevent uh, investors from making mistakes. I don't see a world where you know, sort of we uh, employ a team of you know, financial advisors, but I certainly feel that technology is starting to bridge the gap of what is possible. And we certainly hope, I certainly hope, that in the future, we will be able to utilize technology to help our clients make better financial decisions. I love the, the theme of creating not just a country but a world with greater financial literacy, having lived in the world of, of athletes and, and a, a lack of financial literacy in, in just in that very small cohort, something I'm, I'm very passionate about. So we've kind of gone through the growth opportunity. I think it's emerged pretty quickly what your competitive advantages are, be it brand and scale and counter position. What else do you think of that makes BetaShares such a special business. How do you think about your own competitive advantage that we may not have drawn out already? The biggest competitive advantage we have is people. Our people is something that I'm much more proud of than anything else. I mean, we can focus, of course, and often external observers, of course, focus on the metrics that are measurable. And our assets under management is measurable and our revenues are measurable as our profits. Um, and of course, um, you know, I am very proud uh, of all of those, but that pales in comparison to the sense of pride and the sense of achievement I have when I walk into the office every day, and I love walking to the office every day, and be surrounded by this incredible, incredible group of people, and we have so much in common as a, as a team, and um, that gives me so much pride and that is absolutely our competitive advantage because I often think about the world of business in a way which is very similar you know to my upbringing of playing chess you know when you play chess you have to have a game plan in mind you know before you sit with an opponent 
um, and you're about to start a game. And if you don't have a game plan in mind, you'll be, you'll be wiped out pretty quickly. You need to have a game plan. But at the same time, it's much more important to be able to adjust your game plan and to be able to respond to the moves that your opponent is making. And Magnus Carlsen, uh, I mean, he's obviously um, regarded as one of the best players, if not the best player in the world. But one of the things that's special about Magnus Carlsen is that he throws curveballs at his opponents all the time. He doesn't play the traditional game. And in the world of business, it's very important to have a business plan when you're starting a business or when you're running a business. But it's also critical to be able to respond to the evolving market dynamic, to respond to the moves your competitors are making. And if you're just blindly following your own game plan that you've conceived when you started, you'll not make it. So the team that we have and the DNA, for lack of a better term, uh, that we all share is that ability, uh, but also the willingness and also the desire to always keep an eye out on what's going on around us and to be able to evolve and to be able to adjust um, to the dynamics in the market that are evolving, of course, all the time. You certainly beat me to the punchline. Uh, one of the themes I wanted to elicit from you was your secret sauce around people and culture. And, and what I'm hearing is around this cognitive flexibility and, and willingness and ability to adapt and evolve. And that, to me, could be wrapped up in a simple word, and that is innovation. I'm always curious to understand whether innovative cultures can be planned for is it an outcome of an effective culture? To a large extent, probably yes. Uh, there's probably a bit of both. But um, the fear of failure, in my view, is, is one of the greatest inhibitors to innovation. So the one thing that I spent a lot of my time on, and we as a team spend a lot of time on, is breaking down any concerns around trying something that doesn't work. I am a huge believer in the fact that innovation, by definition, means that you're doing something that has not been done before. If it is, in fact, that you're doing something that has not been done before, it is almost a mathematical certainty that you will fail on occasion. And embracing that mathematical certainty and just reality of life, then when you're doing something new, something different, it will occasionally not work, is absolutely fine. And I love living with that understanding. And we as a business and we as a team practice that on a daily basis. So every day we talk and we do try new things. That could be launching new products, and sometimes we launch a product that doesn't work. Uh, it could involve a marketing campaign that doesn't work, um, and we've learned some lessons out of that. It might be a different, um, you know, um, you know, sort of different approach to explaining something to, you know, sort of to clients. It, it happens every single day, and I feel that innovation, without genuine embrace of failure and making mistakes, is really hard. Let's dig in here. Can you give a, a practical example for maybe some operators listening how you've empowered your leaders and managers to not just move quickly and make decisions quickly and hopefully effectively, but also have that same mindset that failure is okay. Some things, if we are being generally innovative, will fail. Yeah, we literally talk about it on a very, very regular basis. And I would say every single person that works at BetaShares is aware of the fact that we encourage uh, doing something differently, trying new things, and we absolutely encourage mistakes. As bizarre as it sounds, um, we 
absolutely encourage our team to to be brave and to not fear um, uh, you know, making a mistake. We talk about it. We try to learn from our mistakes. Of course, nobody wants to repeat the same mistake, you know, 20 times. But that is absolutely a part of what we do, and and part of the mindset of the um, you know of the team. What about the practicality of hiring people now at 110 people with this innovative culture and, and mindset that you're trying to impose? Do you think you can test an incoming employee to? see whether in fact they do have this innovative mindset or, or do you just back yourself to unlock that inside them? Um, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Uh, you definitely can test for curiosity. You know, curiosity uh, in an individual is is very apparent, uh, certainly very apparent when it lacks. That is very clear and very important. There's certainly a number of instances, you know, of colleagues that we have successfully uh, worked together with now for many, many years, and we're very fortunate. Generally, as a business, we've had very low, uh, you know, sort of turnover as a business. But you know, there are people who come from restrictive environments, and it doesn't matter how creative a person you are, if the environment around you is is restrictive or is punishing or not welcoming of of change or innovation or new ideas or you know, overly harsh on, on treating failures, basically, or mistakes, it will absolutely crush morale, and it will crush any ounce of innovation. Yeah, so it's a, mix, it's a mix of both, in my view. And what about as a leader, how you're tracking this culture of innovation? Are there any forward-leaning indicators that you might look to, or, or measurement, or any diagnostic tools? Obviously, there are vast ways to which you can measure culture specifically, but to dig into innovation more specifically, is there something that you look to as a CEO that says, right, we're on track here? Yeah, look, I mean, there are lots of things. I mean, innovation happens um, at a micro level um, every single day. At a macro level or a slightly higher level, it's very much visible to me in the in the results and the ideas. So, I mean, I'm almost on a, on a weekly basis surprised. For example, being surprised by something that the team puts forward is a really great indicator of innovation ideas that I have not thought about or our senior management team have not thought about. I mean, that is awesome. Like, you know, like I love, you know, sitting in the room, you know, with, with one or, or the, you know, the teams or the entire business and hearing ideas and hearing things that are being worked on. That is genuine innovation, basically. And that happens completely away from the boardroom or, you know, completely away from, um, you know, certainly from my, um, you know, sort of from my desk. So yeah, there's a bit of both. There's a bit of micro indicators um, that, that are very frequent and, um, and, and slightly high level. Just to wrap innovation in a bow, so to speak, is there a cultural shadow to innovation? You, you might think of unfinished MVPs, uh, some unstructured innovation that leads nowhere that you might be willing to take or, or might not. It might be that low humility creeps in and, and you're a high humility environment, even just hearing you talk low ego, high humility, but knowing I will innovate and the customers will love it as opposed to, you know, we, we want to hear the customer and innovate on what we're hearing. What are the shadows to some of the innovations <laughs> yes. that, yeah. that you might have uncovered? Look, it's a great, it's, it's a really good question. Um, look, I'll try to answer it, but also not answer it in the sense that there's just a couple of things that, that come to mind as you, as you sort of asked your question. I think, first of all, um, there is a... I don't know if you love Japanese food. I love, love Japanese. Japanese. You love food. Japanese food. Okay. Well, I love Japanese food and I love Japan. Um, uh, Japanese have a concept of omakase. And that is basically a term where you kind of rock up to the restaurant and you sit in front of the chef and the chef gives you food and you don't even, you, you don't even know what he's going to give you basically. And, you know, by the time you finished your meal, 
you're just blown away quite often by what the chef serves you, even though you haven't ordered it, basically. You didn't even know that you want it. And I kind of think about the concept of omakase, applicability to innovation, applicability to business, basically. I mean, too much focus occasionally uh, is being given on giving customers what they want. And occasionally, we like to play with the idea of actually giving customers something that might not even think, might not have been even thought of, basically. So I think that customer research is, is certainly important, and we do quite a bit of it. But we also like to play around um, with an idea of omakase and bring to the market something that people didn't even know existed. I mean, we've lo recently launched uh, the first uh, global royalties uh, ETF. I mean, nobody would ever ask you for global royalties ETF. I mean, people know that General Reinhardt got very wealthy of, uh, you know, a royalty stream, but nobody would say, yeah, give me a royalties ETF. I'd like that. You know, we thought, you know what, we should, we should launch something like that because it makes sense. If it's good enough for General Reinhardt, it might be good enough for our clients. Okay. Yeah, so, so that's kind of number one. So the omakase concept is really interesting. And um, the other thing that I would mention, and, and that's kind of the, you know, sort of maybe that shadow, as you said, um, behind, you know, innovation is that innovative environments are environments of pace and environments of change. And I think being able to live with that pace um, and being comfortable, you know, with the change uh, is really important. And that's something that we continue highlighting, obviously, to our team. We continue highlighting to people who are considering a career, you know, with beta shares, um, you know, when you are an innovative business. And again, I certainly don't think we are the most innovative business. There's lots of other innovative businesses that I love reading about and, and following and tracking. But that is certainly one thing in common with a lot of businesses that innovate. Change is something that, that happens and the team needs to be happy with that change. Wonderful insights. Just to come full circle, the last topic I want to cover, we're going to go back to your beginnings in the Ukraine. And unfortunately, we're now living through a time of of sadness for that country with a horrific war taking place. I know you're very active in supporting the Ukrainian community, both in Australia and back in your homeland. I'd love to hear more about your passion project that I know is, is so close to your heart. Yeah, um, look, it's, it's, a, it's a really horrendous uh, situation, obviously, and it does break my heart. Um, having spent uh, you know, a very meaningful portion of my, uh, of my life in Ukraine, you know, to now see the country um, being subjected to such, you know, atrocities. I was paralyzed for the first few weeks, um, uh, you know, after the, after the war and the invasion started. I was angry, very angry, um, but really wasn't productive in any way. Couldn't really focus on work. Um, and, you know, we just glued basically to the, to the, you know, TV screen and, as they say, the doom scroll, basically, uh, of, uh, you know, sort of, of social media. But fortunately, um, I had a moment of realization that obviously being angry, um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a productive or constructive way to be. And I realized I need to start doing something basically myself. So me and my wife, Shana, have started buying, you know, sort of ambulances and other aid for Ukraine. And then I had a number of my friends um, who approached me and said, hey, Alex, um, how can we help? How can we get involved? Um, can we give you some money so we buy more? And that's why I figured if there is an opportunity to do it in a bigger way, um, I should really try to make it happen. And we started a foundation uh, called the United Ukraine Appeal. Those that are listening um, and have any inclination, uh, any desire to help, please check out theukraineappeal.org. 
the United Ukraine Appeal um, is a registered uh, charity. Uh, it is focused on delivering non-military aid to the victims of war uh, in Ukraine. We have just um, uh, two days ago seen the latest escalation and the latest barrage of um, you know missiles um, and rockets, um, and I it, it absolutely you know sort of brought me and and my family to tears to be receiving videos from Ukraine um, of people living in bomb shelters that we have built over the course of the last few months, and the fact that we know that these are the things that we have been able to do, and been able to send um, ambulances, um, you know, a lot of medical aid. Um, that is that is again a small contribution, basically a small contribution that we are very fortunate uh, to be able to make. So again, if anybody uh, feels that supporting this cause is, is worthwhile, please uh, check out uh, you know our website. Uh, I'll be very grateful for any support. I'll make sure I put the website link in the show notes. So click through the icon on whatever podcast provider you're listening to, and the link will be sitting there for anyone that does want to support Alex. This is been incredible to uncover a world that many know of but probably haven't dug into and and the world of ETFs is is fascinating and and you're at the centre of it particularly in Australia so many lessons for so many operators thanks for your time great to talk to you Ed thanks